Hi, everyone, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike and Robin Ellicott, as written by Robert Galbraith. As always, please be aware that our discussion of the epigraphs will include spoilers for all of the books, including the Ink Black Heart. My name is Kens. And I'm Pools. And unfortunately, Lindsay couldn't be here for today's recording. She's been detained by St. Patrick's Day Art and Math, which <laughs> sounds, of course, very intriguing. But she sends everyone her love and she'll be back next time. And while she's gone, Pools and I will be joined by a very special guest who we've had on before as we discuss the epigraphs of the Ink Black Heart. We are thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Beatrice Groves, who teaches Shakespeare and Renaissance English literature at Oxford University. She's the author of Literary Illusion in Harry Potter and has a blog over at MuggleNet called Bethilda's Notebook, at which she discusses aspects of all of Rowling's works. We'll be including a link to her blog in this episode's show notes if you'd like to read more. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. Our last Epigraphs episode was a blast, as I recall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed talking about the Epigraphs. They're such fun. Me too, especially <laughs> the Ink Black Hearts Epigraphs. Mm -hmm. We have been loving going through and reading each poem and discovering these new works. I know I have. <laughs> I mean, I think they are new works for, for us. everyone. No, yeah. no, not just for you. These are, you know, there's four or five poets who mm -hmm. are quite well known and everyone else is, you know, pretty heroically obscure. If you're not a 19th century poetry person, then you haven't read most of these poets. Yeah. Which is exciting. It's <laughs> yeah, exciting. absolutely. absolutely. Even it. with all the misattributions, right? Uh, yeah, even with those. Well, let's... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I, I'm still fuming a little over the last one. Over Joanna we'll Bailey. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm still upset. But all right. So there are so many different voices in these epigraphs. It's hard to know where to start. The sheer number of them is boggling. But I guess a fun place to start would be with our first encounter with these epigraphs, which was when J.K. Rowling tweeted the epigraph for chapter one ahead of the release I guess to refresh everyone's memory, the epigraph was, why did you let your eyes so rest on me and hold your breath between? In all of the ages, this could never be as if it had not been a moment by Mary Elizabeth Coleridge. What were your initial thoughts when you read this? Yeah, well, it was an exciting, exciting moment. I was, you know, I was disappointed in the sense that this is not a poet I know. So I had been hoping for Shakespeare sonnets and that made it clear that, that we're not going to get Shakespeare sonnets. I'm still holding out for them. You know, as we've talked about, she's in the previous two novels, she's done these, you know, extraordinary achievement of getting all her epigraphs from one text mm -hmm. and I do hope she might do that again and I think Shakespeare's on it would be a fantastic choice um, oh, and Paradise Lost so I'm put, putting out there into the ether those are my two most desired future epigraphs you know what we're manifesting it I would love Paradise Lost because it might make me finally finish reading Paradise from a sort of getting people poetic education side yeah. which I hope she's viewing the epigraphs in this way <laughs> paradise lost. I, I, yeah. I've had classes about paradise lost I've been and I still haven't finished it well it's a heck of a lot shorter than fairy queen people always think it's a long poem and you're like it's nothing yeah. compared to fairy queen it's so. not fairy queen <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was very exciting from the romance point of view so that mm. this moment can never be and the discovery which was made about the Leda and the Swan 
yes. moment I thought you know we thought we're getting we're piecing together this Ritz chapter something's going to happen that's going to change their relationship and they're not going to be able to pretend it hasn't happened and and that is we seem to have been completely right about what we were expecting there yes. so that fitted I also went and so I thought maybe she's going to get them all from Mary Elizabeth Coleridge I mm. expected not I was thinking probably this is a sign that we're going to get silkworm parallels so we've talked before about this idea of the chiastic form and that we're expecting this novel to echo silkworm and silkworm is taken from a range of poets so I was sort of thinking that might well be a silkworm parallel and again, Silkworm has lots of heroically obscure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so some of these, you know, nobody has read the two Spanish soldiers or whatever. So, you know, she, I was sort of thinking, okay, maybe it's that. But I also wondered if we might be getting women who uh, have more famous male relatives. I thought maybe that was going to be one of the things. Yeah, like Rossetti, Christina Rossetti. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so there was, there was a little bit of that. But yeah, so she's Samuel Taylor Coleridge's uh, relative. Relative. She also wrote under a pseudonym, which Anadose, was Anados. Yes. So that does have a like anime feel. Like this is a sound thing, but I also wondered if we were going to get female writers who write under pseudonyms. I wondered for that reason if we might get Michael Field, who's a sort of famous example of this. So Michael Field is in fact two lesbians. I think they're together, slightly shockingly, because they're aunt and niece, I believe. So it's a, yeah, uh, yeah, it's quite a wild one. There. But <laughs> it was interesting because they, you know, I you may have seen this that someone sort of thought, oh, maybe they should be poet laureate when they thought it was a bloke, and then when they discovered it was two women, that was like, no, definitely not. Of so I thought we might get Michael Field. So that was really nice that, that he did turn up. But otherwise, sort of looking through. Coleridge's output and I found you know looking for poems which I just felt like they might turn up in Ink Black Heart mm-hmm. and I, met, I got five hits so I got five ones that did oh. so yeah I was very pleased with that one was the ink bottle I thought it might turn up for obvious reasons yes and that was a great one yeah so that was a cool one and then also the the other side of the mirror um, I just felt that sort of imagery of mirroring and masking and mm-hmm. That seemed quite suitable, and that did indeed, I think that turned up twice. One of the chapters that turned up was 91, which is the Hartella chapter where um, Strike basically tells her what's been going on, and she's been creating alibis for a murderer by being Adam. <laughs> and I thought that was quite interesting. That's the one that goes, her hair stood back on either side, a face bereft of loveliness. It had no envy now to hide what once no man on earth could guess. It formed the thorny aureole of hard, unsanctified distress. So I think there's a slightly, perhaps a slightly nasty thing here of when she mentions Hartella's hair being her best feature and how she sort of, you know, framed one eye earlier. <laughs> it's like uh, one, of yeah. those, one of those moments where you feel she's being a bit unkind. <laughs> so this, like, sort of, this sort of is no longer doing that. But I thought in other senses, it has some sympathy. I think Hartella is a the narrative voice has very little sympathy for Hartella yeah and this at least this poem is very sympathetic the sort of sense that the distress that feminine distress is not pretty Mm -hmm. it seems like something really ghastly has happened to this woman in the poem but that you shouldn't turn away from it because it's not pretty it's not feminized it's not the sort of Victorian idea of womanhood 
And so I, I quite like that sort of a glimmer of sympathy towards Hartella to her hard and sanctified distress here. Hartella has become a sort of controversial discussion on this uh, podcast yeah. between okay. myself and yeah. Lindsay. Right. Uh, okay. So, well, Lindsay's not here. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was just about to say, yeah, I pulled Lindsay's a bit more sympathetic. <laughs> Hartella, she's like, nah. I really am not a fan <laughs> of Hartella. No, no, I don't. Way, I'm uh, not a fan of Hartella, but, but I do feel, you know, that, that it's yeah. quite striking how little sympathy for her there is and there is this sense of her so I mean for example in this chapter where she mm-hmm. says she thinks Inigo is enemy and I bet she's not alone I bet you know I as a reader and I think I've got the feeling from number a number of people were thinking Inigo so it strikes yeah. just the woman's insane how stupid can you be to think Inigo so you know I feel that's quite a nice moment of making us well we're not totally agreeing with you here strike I'm feeling a bit got at but like that's true that's a good point because yeah I was slipping between I was slipping between Inigo and Katya for a lot so of the book right. yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know obviously Rowling's brilliance that we both got that is definitely an upcut but we're not yeah. I suspect it's Flavia I was like oh yeah. not the Flavia would be enemy on her own yeah but I just thought you know who, you know that natural way you're like who am I not suspecting at all you know yes that mm-hmm. was um, my thought and <laughs> Gus was just too obvious <laughs> yeah exactly so obviously Trick not this Gus, all you know. again very clever um, but yeah I thought that was quite a moment but yeah I suppose the sense of Hartella as a fan who's writing this book and this all just sort of falling apart for her but that there's nothing really wrong in the fact she's writing the book and yeah. she doesn't know Philip Almond has got the you know she's perfectly legitimate to think Philip's got these ideas because Edie's been talking to him not because mm-hmm. He's stolen her phone, you know. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, she seems to me she's a little bit of a victim who's not given much sympathy for that. But I think you're not wrong there. I think you're 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 right. But my experience was much like yours. I went down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out which selection of authors she could be drawing from. I was focusing on the fin de siècle because I thought, oh, it might be a narrow time period, you know, and yeah. this sort of turn of the century feels like it connects with the themes of anime to me but mm. then she went she went so much broader I think mm. her epigraphs cover pretty much all of the 19th century yeah I agree yeah. There's, actually, there's romantic poets people always you know she mentions mm-hmm. them just as Victorian poets but they're not just Victorian poets it's true Joanna Bailey's a romantic isn't she yeah and I yeah. think that's important for this sense of authorship as something that is taking on a different turn Mm-hmm. So the romantics are when authorship gets a bit mixed up with celebrity. So I think that's an interesting time for these people were people were interested in the houses they lived in, all that kind of thing. And that doesn't happen much before. No, it doesn't. But I'm thinking of like Wordsworth's home in, in the lakes. Yeah, they become famous as, as people. Not just for what they write, yes. you know. By- Byron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Byron is absolutely yeah. the bad boy. Everyone's in love with him. That sort of side of things. So the celebrity culture is sort of being is sort of born in the 18th century, and so I think that's that's important for this topic of the ink black heart. And I noticed yeah. some of these other authors who, yeah, we hadn't really heard of, but are 
quite famous in their time. So the Ada, Ada Isaacs Menken. Yeah, that's yes. right. She she was the highest paid actress of her day. Was she? Yeah. So she's completely oh, wow. she's famous in another sphere, you know, and then mm. also wrote poetry. I don't think people generally took her poetry that seriously. <laughs> so that just that sense of, yeah, sort of feminine celebrity mm-hmm. interacting with authorship. I think that's such a neat parallel that I hadn't realized before. So you mentioned Rowling referring to the epigraphs as from Victorian women. And I thought that we might include what she has actually said about the choice of epigraphs. Well, the epigraphs in this book are all female poets of the Victorian era, as we may guess from where where we're sitting to do do this. Um, Highgate Cemetery is a a massively important um, location in this book. And it's high Victorian, you know, it's that very Gothic, almost celebration of death. So it's a place of mourning, but it's a place of beauty. And the epigraphs very much reflect a certain time. They're all female because the, um, the client in the book is a woman. She's an animator. Yeah, I can't give too much else away, but I will say that I also used Grey's Anatomy, which was funny. I I ended up reading all about the heart in Grey's Anatomy. So I've also taken epigraphs from Grey's Anatomy and the the, um, construction of the heart itself. Uh, So, you know, it doesn't take, you don't have to be a genius to understand that this is, you know, when you're dissecting a heart and the book is called The Ink Black Heart, you can imagine it worked on many different levels. So this is interesting to me, what Joe says, because she highlights a few different aspects of the epigraphs. So she talks about the fact that they're Victorian. She connects that with this sort of Gothic celebration of death. She talks about how they're women and she connects that with Edie. And then she mentions using Grey's Anatomy to focus on the construction of the heart. And I think that these might be sort of pointers as to what we should be considering when we look at the epigraphs, right? Yeah. Starting with the Victorians, I guess. Beatrice, I know that your area is Shakespeare Renaissance. What are your general experiences with and feelings towards 19th century literature coming into this? Yeah, this is new area for me. So I know uh, 19th century novels very well, just from my own reading and you know, love of Dickens and things. Yeah. But these are generally new authors to me. So Rossetti, Dickinson, you know, sort of four or five of them who I've read before. None of them I've studied and all the others um, I hadn't even heard of pretty much. Okay. So yeah, they're all new and not, you know, it's a disappointment for me personally um, in terms <laughs> of when it was Fairy Queen, I was just, yeah, jumping up and down new immediately. Yeah. The context for the quote. So this is obviously it's going to take a lot longer to do. And I haven't, so I've done Mary Elizabeth Coleridge and um, I've, read Aurora Lee looking for the things but those are the only ones I've so far sort of done the full mm-hmm. work with. Rowling was a little bit dismissive of some of the poetry in the Twitter interview except she said so not Rossetti obviously who we know she's loved before and I've mm-hmm. I've written a blog on Batilda's notebook about the cuckoo's calling which I thought was brilliant and of course in that case had a really big clue because partly obviously because it's the whole the whole poem and the title so it's sort of being more presented but I think also because people didn't know who she was yet so she could leave quite 
big clues without people neck working out so I just leave just yeah. leave more subtle clues now yeah <laughs> so Charlotte Mew is the Joni Mitchell of this novel so Joni Mitchell was someone who she wasn't particularly interested in and she just chose because she had a thing coming out in in 74 yes um and then fell in love with I've fallen in love with a few of Charlotte Mew's poems as well oh. as they're amongst my favorite yeah excellent so I've had the same experience yeah, so, yeah. I don't know as a, you know as you say I'm not a Victorianist at all but I hadn't heard of Charlotte Mew before no I hadn't either I do have some academic background with 19th century just um, a few graduate seminars and a lot of undergrad classes but like you said mostly with the novels my mm-hmm. poetry is very weighted towards the romantics and mostly the men because that was the course yeah and I'm also just just as a sort of side issue until she became Galbraith she was always very self-deprecating about her own response to poetry yes she said you know I'd like to be the kind of person who wanders into the garden with a sheaf of sonnets but I'm not Um, (laughs) (laughs) but um maybe we're seeing her own you know growth and obviously poetry is really good for epigraphs because it packs so much into a small space. It really does, yes. Works much better epigraphically. And also, of course, prose is the medium you are yourself writing in. So Mm. I think it works much better to have a disjunct as well between the medium of the epigraph. So I think we're going to carry on seeing poetic epigraphs and, yeah, her own new enthusiasm for poetry as as a form and... Uh, the Fairy Queen was, you know, I always, the Fairy Queen was the big one for me. And I always felt this, you know, implausibility when people, you talked about Fairy Queen, people just thought, I just don't think that someone who hasn't studied English at university has read the Fairy Queen. And I think, <laughs> you know, that is true for most people. So it's really nice to know that she is. And if you can read the Fairy Queen, then all other poetry is yeah, small potatoes. <laughs> I agree with you that we will probably see a lot of poetry. I'm still hoping that one day we might get a really meta set of epigraphs from golden age detective literature, just because I want to get some Dorothy Sayers, Gaudy Knight, Busman's Honeymoon, Whimsy Harriet romance. I, no, I can see that. That you would know, be really fun. It would be fun. It would be meta, but I think <laughs> it might be difficult. And that, yeah, yeah, as you said, the poetry and the plays work much better, don't they? I think they do. So these Victorian women... How do you see them relating to the core of this novel? Yeah, so I think I this is what I really love about the fact she's used these women mm-hmm. is that this seems to me to redress something I felt was slightly underplayed in the novel itself. So we have Edie as the creator and I just felt the novel was lacking a little bit of uh, warmth towards her. Mm-hmm. And I particularly coming after Margot. So... With Margot, I thought we have incredible warmth for Margot and the sort of discovery of these lives and the ways she's improved lives for so many people around her. And she's been dead 40 years. And then we have Edie, who turned up and Robbins met her and Robbins turned her away. And I know loads of us were thinking when we saw the blurb, oh no, Robin's going to be in pieces because she's turned away this person and she gets murdered. And it's almost like, she's like, yeah, obviously I had to turn away. What's the problem? You know, of course I wouldn't be upset. But I just sort of thought, oh, I was already yeah. more upset <laughs> You know, so this sense that there's sort of a lack of warmth for Edie, which fits generally with, I felt the novel as a whole had this slight anime aspect of separations and people interacting only online, interacting through personas, the separation, this yet again 
just completely blank relationship for strike all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and that fitted a bit with not not having as much warmth for Edie as I felt we should have and I felt that this moving women who had been you know who are creators who have been forgotten overlooked putting them in the spotlight like this was the as it were real world empathy that we were missing for Edie and it helped sort of put her position as a woman who's been removed from her own creation where it should be. Oh that's fantastic so the epigraphs are doing the work of the real life Edie's. Yeah, exactly. Of bringing that empathy to us even though it doesn't appear in the novel. I love your argument about Edie and about female creators I also felt that these epigraphs sort of spoke to my understanding of Robin as well, not necessarily as a creator, but as a woman working in a traditionally male dominated field who is, she's torn sometimes between her vocation and her heart or struggles with how to reconcile those two things sometimes in the same way that many of these female writers in the Victorian period were struggling with the domestic expectations placed on women, with the demands that they stay at home, be an angel in the house, that they refrain from unwomanly pursuits in, in the male literary sphere. I think that really brings us round to Aurora Lee. Yes, it does. That's the sort of main one for this. And I think so we had in the JK Barmy Army Twitter yes. conversation, just a little shout out to them here. I was just so delighted they managed to get on Twitter because I felt that after In Black Heart, the sort of it highlighted the sort of dangers of unpleasant Twitter intercourse. And I thought, how are they going to get a genuinely interactive thing for rolling it again? Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you saw, you know, beforehand she had this thing that build itself as Q&A interactive and it was just choose these questions from a route of three questions. Like, this is not interactive. Yeah. But they did manage to get a genuine interactive Twitter conversation with her, which was wonderful. And I'm, I'm really hoping they're going to do this for every book here on in. It was. It was great. Yeah, it was massively insightful. Yes. Yeah. She was asked on Twitter whether to bar me. Someone asked her on Twitter, was it? It was Nick Jeffrey. Yes. Yeah. So Nick Jeffrey, who sort of co-runs a Hogwarts professor, mm. and he is very good at internet things. So <laughs> a number of us gave him our questions much more confident he would manage to get them answered. And he had a you know, very successful strike rate. And he got a question, both one of my questions, one of Louise's questions, one of John's questions answered. And this was John's question. Yes. He asked whether Aurora Lee was the book within the book of Ink Black Heart. And Rowling's response was, yes, yes, yes. Well spotted. There's a definite Aurora Lee connection all the way to Zoe slash Marion Earl. And I thought, you know, I thought, yes, yes, yes. It's like, they're so strong. And she didn't use any language like that in the rest of the interaction that was a real oh I'm so pleased someone has spotted yes <laughs> that Aurora Lee is important yeah. so I mean obviously now you've dived into Aurora Lee knowing that it's yes. so important yes. to this so, right yeah, right yeah exactly that was I've done a bit be. of an Aurora Lee dive as well I found it really interesting that she connected Zoe and Marion because going into Aurora Lee I was thinking of Corman Robin parallels but I guess it makes sense because Zoe and Marion are definitely both incredibly vulnerable girls women robin has an instinct to protect zoe and i think she does say in that tradition she says it like all the way to yes so i think she's she's sort of as it were acknowledging a moving past that we've got aurora and robin mm -hmm. and romney and strike and i think that is clear 
yes. but she's taking you to places you wouldn't necessarily have expected to go and my assumption here and obviously I would love to know more about her process of choosing and what happens and we've spoken before about how I feel with both Rosmer Scholm and Fairy Queen these must have been quite early on in the process yeah but this one you thought maybe she's gone to Aurora Lee for the Robin and Strike parallels and then finding the Zoe Marianelle one was perhaps the one that came to her on reading it and it was not so obvious but yeah she's a sort of sexually abused virtue of a sort of yeah, young pale girl so sort of yeah, it's a visual similarities the sort of purity of them the sort of ghastly things that a patriarchal society does to them in Aurora Lee the bad guy as it were is actually a woman lady lady Waldemar. Yeah. yeah so it's interesting and obviously one immediately thinks uh you know charlotte clacks and goes on when you see evil powerful woman but she's not obviously charlotte's not in any way related to the zoe side of the story but i felt that shit stirring as strike calls it <laughs> charlotte is sort yeah. of present in the lady Voldemar. she is she's lurking there i also was interested again in terms of the reading um you know when was she reading this how long is it going on the tragic seamstress story mm. so dora dovetail is tragic seamstress in the Ichabog and oh that's yes yes Marion early so again you know Ichabog is a long time ago so if you probably 2006 she started that so yeah so maybe not but obviously seamstresses are sort of classic Victorian tragic characters they but, are <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless I just had a sort of oh, interesting yeah moment yeah it was interesting because i saw zoe is very much in in blackheart a victim of male violence grooming we focus a lot mm -hmm. on tim ashcroft the pedophile and, and what he's done to her and marion is a victim of male violence as well but it's put into sort of motion by these women by her mother selling her by lady waldemar tricking her and i just think it's interesting that there's that shift between the poem and Rowling's, I guess, interpretation or translation mm. of the character to highlight and to focus on the actions of the man who is abusing her. Yeah, exactly. And here, as in basically, you know, obviously, particularly Troubled Blood and Career of Evil, it seems that male violence is much more something that Rowling is interested in. So yes. I wonder if Elizabeth Barrett Browning felt that to sort of soften that side of things, she needed to make some of the women more into the scene. I think it's were. likely because <laughs> yeah. these are the strategic moves that women have mm. to make writing you know in a patriarchal system you have to tone it down to make it acceptable you have yeah. to cloak some of it makes sense to me but I love that I love that Rowling highlights this <laughs> so, uh, one of my favorite parts of these novels is the way yeah. she highlights violence against women and girls but anyway before I before I go yeah. off on that which yeah. I will and have you talked about Romney is Carmen and Aurora is Robin. And I think mm. that that is such an exciting parallel. When I first started reading um, Aurora Lee, I saw these descriptions of Romney, cold and shy, tender when he thought of it. And as the early master of Leigh Hall, where the nightmare sat upon his youth, repressing all of its seasonable delights. And that just, it kind of spoke to me a little bit of mm -hmm. aspects of Carmen's character. You know, he was forced to grow up too young he, mm. he can be a really sweet guy you know when he yeah. remembers to <laughs> and aurora's commentary of him i used him for a friend before i ever knew him for a friend sort of mm. spoke to me of this slow growth of their their friendship absolutely and i feel also that sort of 
early rejection. So that's one of the things that fitted with the ink black heart yes. block I felt that it sort of starts with her rejecting his proposal, which obviously proposal yeah. like kiss is sort of the parallel thing. Same thing. Same thing. <laughs> Basically. <in this. laughs> Basically. If she'd let him kiss him in this this world, then they would have been getting married. So yeah. um <laughs> yeah, that sense of a sort of rejection and a rejection for the same reason. So the rejection is about the fact that she's putting her work first and she feels that her work would be killed off by this. Yes. So obviously with Robin, it's a joint work, it's the agency, but in both cases, it's a sort of belief and a love for their vocation that they're putting ahead of the personal. And I think, I'm hoping, obviously, that we're gonna get a situation <laughs> where the same resolution, that the ending is a realization that the vocation and the personal vocation don't have to be at odds, they can come together. And that's the same, obviously, with the agency, as long as they do stay together, Mm-hmm. then it isn't a problem for the agency it's only a problem if they're gonna yeah separate yeah so. yeah when you mention the ending of Aurora Lee and hoping that it comes to fruition I was reading the ending and Romney he shows up at Aurora Lee's um, beautiful Florentine villa I believe it's in Florence somewhere <laughs> in Italy a beautiful Italian villa and he's been blinded mm. quite literally because his, his attempt at a poor house bur- was burnt down by a mob it made me think of another Victorian piece of literature, Jane Eyre, where yes, Jane absolutely. returns to Rochester. He's been blinded because his wife burnt down Thornfield Hall, right? And then I'm I'm coming to Cormoran at the end of Ink Black Heart is physically incapacitated. He's close to death. He almost dies. And he talks about how he has been blind, but his eyes have opened. It just makes me think of how there's this trope that a man is sort of, he must be physically humbled, brought down before he can undergo this sort of psychological transformation that makes him ready and worthy for this real consummated love of equals, right? Yeah. Because this sort of physical incapacitation fixes an inequality of power in the Victorian literature. So in Jane Eyre, she can now be Rochester's equal because he's been brought down in this way. In Rorley, there's a shift of power where Romney at the beginning has the inheritance it's his to offer, but Rorley's success at the end, they're more equals. Mm. And it just feels that there is this same shifting of imbalance at points in Ink Black Heart. The first one I noticed was when Robin feels like just the potential of going on a date had somehow redressed an imbalance between her and Strike. So she was worried about the inequality of their experience. And now that's shifted. Yeah. No, and I, I like that yeah. as well, from just in the sense that she doesn't have to go out with him. Yeah, you know? she doesn't have to. Because it's there. I also feel like her going out with him is a bit like Strikes going out with his women, and that we all know she's done. Yeah. So it's, like, it's very unfair on the other half. It is. It to is. Do it. So I like the, the concept that she might is enough to regress the balance and I like it so I, I fear we are going to be pursuing that but I would like to feel that we didn't need to we could just say yes yeah well one one can hope that Murphy is actually an evil secret halvening member no, so not. that we don't feel bad for him <laughs> no you're not. I've seen that I'm not not going to not on board one. that's fair <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't get too hurt if he's a nice guy. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, just to go with the, so the epigraph for the Ink Black Heart as a whole is two form of darkness are there. Mm-hmm. One is light 
and one is blindness blindness and then that is echoed in that final i've been so blind not the word yeah. he uses but on the podcast i will say so um <laughs> that yeah so that the blindness is as you say it's nice that it has a literal parallel in the source and yet yeah, barrett browning was consciously using jane eyre there yeah certainly so, so. my goodness this is very strong jane eyre and i suppose <laughs> she didn't know at the time this is going to become one of the most famous novels of all time so everyone was going to read go and go you know, you were just plagiarising Jane Eyre. <laughs> less clear at the time. But yeah, it's very uncomfortable, I think, the need to, as it were, yeah, disable these men to try and undo their patriarchal advantage. Yeah. Um, it's nice to feel, obviously, we've moved on a bit from that, but he is nonetheless as you say yeah in danger he's in hospital and that's also is it's a reverse of what happened when he visits her in hospital when she's been i think at the end of silkworm is that right where she's so uh, i think louise was pointing this out this is a nice parallel of the letter and so there's a card brought by a child so flavia sent a card to strike oh yeah like orlando sent a card mm. to robin when she was in hospital which strikes takes her so again a sort of yeah i believe he visits her at home at the end of silkworm to okay. give her the card does, does she have to go to hospital after she's been because he's uh, just i assume so i assume she did yes. to get checked out i would i would hope so and i suppose that brings us back to the interplay between the physical heart and the metaphorical heart throughout the yes. novel but also in this interplay of epigraphs where we have the sort of there are male epigraphs here and they're all from Gray's Anatomy so we have these part epigraphs of a prose serious textbook dry in and of mm-hmm. itself but each one takes on a metaphorical sense yes we were recording when was it Ken's it was when we started part two we were looking at the way the clinical epigraphs are printed And they are printed with their lines broken up very much like poetry to me. So if you look Mm. at the epigraph of part two, it is broken up into a sort of poetic form, I think. Yeah. So it's that juxtaposition of the poetic and the clinical is fascinating, I think, in this this interplay and the way that the one influences the other. I have my thoughts on what it means for the novel, but I don't know if you want to go first. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't have any strong sense of just part of, just as with Hearty as a character, I suppose, mm-hmm. that he's a literal heart, but the ink black heart is, you know, all around in these other senses. So just for the whole novel is sort of absolutely deluge of um, literal and metaphorical hearts. And there's loads of uses of the word heart in epigraphs apart from these ones that are actually about the heart and I yeah I just really like the combination of so with the part three where you have you know it's been subjected to prolonged boiling (laughs) 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 incredibly sort of yeah technical clinical the superficial fibers of the ventricles will be exposed so you have the sense of that makes you think oh yes the plot points this sort of sense of how everything's intertwining and then at the end with the last one it's the male heart takes on more weight over age than the female and like yes strike needs to learn more than robin does you know so (laughs) yeah all of them have their sense of working like that either with the plot as a this is going to add to confusion or we're going to try and 
it's, everything's coming out and becoming clearer. And then I suppose in terms of the literal hearts, we have also the stabbing through the heart and that really lovely thing of Josh having the illness where his heart's on the wrong side of that being the thing that sort of breaks him into think when he says yeah Edie would have really loved that kind of love that. yeah I yeah. love that thing that makes him cry and obviously a moment for strike to come through strongly but I like that sort of that's another moment with the literal heart and the sense of affection are, are coming together so yeah I thought that interplay was you know a sort of antiphonal play between the prose the medical and the poetic and metaphorical was very nicely done but yeah what, what were you I agree well I'm just I'm thinking about now I'm thinking about the number of hearts you've mentioned in the book and there are so many hearts and in a way I know the book is about disconnection but in a way it's also about love except it's love that's gone wrong so unfulfilled love twisted love false love denied love becomes sick and turned to hatred and obsession and I just think that that's fascinating in a book about hearts all the ways that a heart can go go wrong and hopefully strikes heart is going to be on the right course right yeah that sense of you know we don't get that much of the cartoon but the mm-hmm. reason his heart is black is that his owner did evil things yeah and this sense you know, I think there's a sight sense, it doesn't happen, but the sort of possibility of a sort of purgatorial life for this, where he could stop being an ink black heart. You know, if Hearty did enough good in this world where he gets to be, then he could go back to being a red heart and it could all be okay for him. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that sense of hope is there because it does say, you know, wounds of the heart are not necessarily fatal. So I think we do get that hope. Talking about sort of that clinical versus the poetic, I think the contrast is interesting because I feel like, especially with what you said, that these are the only male epigraphs in the novel, it sort of speaks to Strike's struggle with his emotions towards Robin because he's been trying very hard to keep a distance from them, to not look at them, to not name them. He's, He's not accepting any of these emotions. But by the end of the novel, he's been forced to see his heart has been dissected. It's been opened up. And then you've got, on the other hand, Robin. She knows that she's in love now, but she too is trying to be very cold and clinical about it. She's trying to pretend like if she forces herself to think the right things, to not think about the wrong things, she can control her heart, make herself fall out of love. So both of them are having these feelings that they are not embracing they're not feeling the poetry of it they're trying to keep that at a distance aren't they that's nice yeah they're trying to be the clinician yes and failing (laughs) failing miserably both of them (laughs) I think that that's an interesting thing to come out of the contrast as well so going back to Aurora Lee I was looking at the specific chapters that had these epigraphs and I sort of found some patterns in the specific chapters to which they're attached. And I think that the repetition of certain subjects in these Aurora Lee chapters might point towards the connections that Rowling is drawing between the poem and the novel. So the one thing I noticed in these epigraphs was Robin and men other than Strike, because Aurora Lee is in several of the Pez Pierce chapters, the one where she, uh, gets a glimpse of his assets as it were <laughs> and the one where she interviews him interviews in the pub mm-hmm. Aurora Lee is also in the chapter where we first meet Murphy and it's the chapter post bombing 
and the one where Murphy drives Robin home and they talk about that disastrous phone call. Yeah. So I guess this is sort of an inverse from the poem where Romney is the one with the other love interests, right? He's the one with Marion. He's the one who thinks yeah. is marrying Lady Waldemar. So I guess this is sort of like this poem's Aurora stepping up and saying, no, I'm going to. I'm going to date some other guys here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really I really like that. It's really a really fun connection. Yeah. It is. And then the other one of course is they are in several of the Zoe and Ashcroft chapters. Aurora Lee shows up when Venetia interviews Tim Ashcroft the pedophile. She shows up in the meeting with Zoe at the end of the novel and in the chapter where Strike threatens Ashcroft as well yeah so that's 102 and I think that's quite helpful as well because Romney the Marion Earl Zoe connection makes Romney and Strike together and you're like no you know it's not Strike who does this yeah no it's Ashcroft (laughs) so that one yeah is Lady Waldemar it's sort of against so the 102 one is and since you've proved so vile I vile I say will show it presently you tricked poor Marion Earl and set her own love digging its own grave Mm -hmm. within her green hopes pretty garden ground Mm-hmm. So this is Ashcroft's sin, and it's Lady Voldemort's sin. So as we said, you know, Lady Voldemort doesn't isn't the sort of isn't the person who attacks Marion, but she is the person who puts her on that path. Yeah, exactly. And that sense of Zoe thinking it's all her fault that this has happened, that her own love digging its own grave is a very nice line for that. As is obviously the vile, you know, just making it completely clear where we stand here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Very much so. And again, it's that transfer of responsibility from the woman to the man. He's the one who's done this. Yes, absolutely. I noticed that the Aurora epigraphs are frequently on Robin chapters, almost all of them. The only ones where there are significant Carmen chapters are, there are a couple chapters where Carmen is physically incapacitated, where we get Aurora Lee epigraphs. And that's the one I think where he tries to punch Theresa's and hurts his leg. And the one mm-hmm. where he is in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then of course the Ashcroft chapter is a strike chapter as well but so there's that there's the two things there's Robin being a boss and then there's Corman being injured yeah which fits with the ending as you were saying yeah also there's sort of a a fun related one of the death's black dust being Ooh. blown infiltrated through every secret fold of this sealed letter by a puff of fate yes. up forever the fresh written ink that's 104 and that's a letter Romney gives to his aunt making the gift to Aurora that Aurora doesn't I think she doesn't have to reject because the aunt dies before the letter's passed on or something. So it has the same, you know, obviously that's got a quite a close parallel. That's the one we find out about the fact the letter in the grave uh, is written by Annamy. Yeah, and that's the final big clue. We also get Aurora Lee in the chapter where we first meet Gus. Right. Okay, so that's nice to have it. Yeah, Gus. And obviously this is, you know, there is a definitely a a slight cheat in this novel about how little we see Gus. So, you know. Yeah, we don't see much. (laughs) If we didn't see Anime, you know, it's fair to say we see a lot of Gus. We just don't see it as Gus. But it's definitely walking a tightrope between not being, not playing fair in terms of Gus is never interviewed. Basically has no conversation with Robin and Strike and so we see him talking to his parents but the only conversation is like a page where he goes oh my my dad's having an affair with someone called Rachel Mm -hmm. so he's in no sense interviewed in any way we never find out about asked about his movements on the day or anything Mm -hmm. I'm not aware of other detective stories where 
the murderer has never even been interviewed in any in any way. That yeah. Seems- that does seem a bit a bit unfair. So. It's so different. It's such a yeah. it's a flip because this murder is about uncovering enemy. But you're right, you get so so little of Gus. And there is you know, the big clue in that one where he's absolutely terrified when he sees them. Yeah. So that that is quite a good clue. But it's mm-hmm. not him having to justify where he was. No, it really isn't. So yeah, that's nice to have a orally clue of yeah, this is an important chapter. Yes. But we could only have known that afterwards, after we've realized how important Aurora is to the book. Yeah, it is quoted the most times, but you have to make your way through to find that. So yeah, Goblin Mm -hmm. Market is running at a close second. Oh, is it? There are lots of Goblin Market? Lots of Goblin Market, yeah. Mm. And Rowling ignored a question about Goblin Market in the Twitter conversation. So interesting. uh, one reason to go for for this one but yeah in terms of the novel itself it's not that dissimilar i think it might no. be 12 goblin Falcon 14 oh. got it down somewhere it is it's on hogwarts professor on john's post uh, initial post about the epigraphs he does do a list of, of, of these things so if you want to find okay. the statistics uh, there will of course will... now we have to adjust that now that we know that there are several poems which aren't listed accurately <laughs> <True>. <laughs> like five bit, of them it does change yeah. a bit one final thing to that. don't know how to pronounce it but it's this is the first female Kunstelroman, so Bildungsroman. Oh yeah, which is a well-known word about sort of you know, the growth. Obviously, Harry Potter is a Bildungsroman, um, but this is a specific version exactly. The Kunstelroman, and I apologise to anyone who speaks <laughs> German, but it means the becoming a threshold of an our life of an artist specifically. Oh, and okay. This is the first female Kunstelroman. Interesting. So that is very cool as the specific, again, just going back to the both Edie as an author, but also I've written before about my feeling of the way in which Robin believes in her vocation mm-hmm. as related, you know, does it does feel very biographical. It does feel like the author herself is expressing through Robin's passion for her vocation, her own passion for her own vocation. So it's very nice to have this link round that this link with Robin's vocation is an authorial link. This is about yes. someone becoming a writer. Um, so yeah. it does sort of circle those round. It nice. does. And Robin has become a detective in this novel. By the yeah. end, oh, yeah. we have a scene where Strikes like she took the lead on this because she's a true partner with, with Rachel Ledwell. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and of course, in the in the yeah, glass, right? The, the name, gift right. of the glass and her name so <laughs> yeah. that people will stop thinking Strike is the boss, hopefully. Yeah. I had a feeling reading that they make a little joke, obviously this of the death of the sofa, um, and there's the sense that everything's painted, and they say, you know, almost worth being bombed to have this nice new shiny stuff. Yeah. And it was a big joke. But the thing we don't know at that point of the glass and having their names made sort of equal in the glass does feel like it yeah. gave me a Solway Calagula feeling, you know, this sort of you have to sort of break things down. Yes. And- rebuild yes. and I thought it was a nice literal them. version of that of that the sort of destruction of the offices being then built being made much nicer and also they yeah, the, the it, union being enabled by the destruction oh, it so is it's a shame they're gonna have to move offices after they just got all <laughs> this new stuff though with yeah, the construction it, it's funny how that was a big thing a while ago wasn't it and I feel like yeah 
She's slightly. She's just fudging it so they don't have. Fudging it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no one wants to see the end of Denmark. No screen. one wants to see. So let's say it was no. a worry and we've just forgotten about it. It's funny how, you know, so we discussed this before about, you know, the question of how many novels there are. And it does feel like the way I read it, which is that it was planned as seven and now is perhaps a non ended, you know, so I, I think definitely 10. But maybe more, it might just be that if she doesn't come up with new ideas, she stops. And if she does, she carries on, you know. Yeah. Then it means that we're sort of spreading out perhaps what was planned mm -hmm. here. So mm -hmm. something that was meant to be happening in book five is now going to be happening in book eight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely felt that with Rokeby. I felt the Rokeby took up a crazy amount of time in Troubled Blood, considering that Good. they never met and never spoken of just, you know, that it was just yeah. putting his phone, you know, obviously had a phone conversation, but nothing was done in the phone conversation. So I thought clearly some important information is going to come from Rokeby to strike yeah. this novel. And he's basically not present, is he? And again, we just had a replay of Charlotte. Charlotte definitely ended in Troubled Blood, changed the phone number, that's the end of Charlotte. What's she doing back again? And now definitely ended with, that's the end of Charlotte, we're not seeing her again. But I felt both <laughs> his relationship with Madeline again, I thought we'd done that, we'd done that in Troubled Blood, we'd had the pointless relationship, that's the end of that, he's gonna have a proper relationship from now on. No, it's a replay. So it does definitely feel like Six has pulled out some of the things that would perhaps originally have just ended in five maybe the move is one of those this was a question i was going to ask you because the titles of troubled blood and ink black heart the blood heart connection to me feels like that blood is what the heart pumps right it mm. feels like it's tying these two novels together as a duo in a significant way is that just me no i think that's perfectly fair and i also think it does fit with a number of other things that we feel that these two novels as i say feel like a little bit of a a replay um mm -hmm. this always reminds me of Henry the Fourth Part One so Henry the Part One despite its unappealing title is one of the greatest plays ever written and Henry the Part Two just isn't you know so Henry the Part Two <laughs> is a lot of the stuff that happened in Henry the Part One again but less okay. fun Oh, I see. You can't help but wondering, you know, if, if Henry the Potter was a bit of a... I was going to write Henry the Fifth, but Henry the Potter One did very well, so I'm doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just not so much fun this time around. It just feels a bit that way. And this felt a little bit like that. A lot of stuff we've seen in Trouble Blood, the relationship moving forward, the Charlotte, Madeline happening again, but less enjoyably, you know, the Ritz missed yeah. kiss is kind of is like the conversation in Troubled Blood, except that it's the other way around. You know, it's like, oh no, this is like a sadder version of it. I know that the Victorians were the realist novel started at some point in the 19th century, didn't it? It feels very messy in a way that real life is messy. The way you take a step forward and a step back and you miss and you repeat your mistakes, even though you're still on an upward path, it does bring a sense of the real to the novels in that sort of, yeah, messy, repetitive, strike, please stop dating other women kind of way <laughs> that it is an interesting project. I think mm. trying to see where these two novels connect and speak to each other would be interesting. I need to take a look for more Odyssey references in this one, Ken's, because we, we were looking at the Troubled Blood as a sort of retelling of the Odyssey in some ways with the Cyclops. Yeah. But Lindsay recently pointed out that Gus, when we first see him, is a bit of a Cyclops too, with his eyes swollen mm -hmm. shut. 
So anyway, but that's for another day. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to go back to the epigraphs. We've talked about how they resonate with Edie, with Robin, and we could talk about some of the other themes in the novel that the epigraphs sort of connect to or speak to. I have some ideas. I've talked before about the theme of, well, we have and Rowling has the theme of disconnection in the novel, the theme of anomie. Mm-hmm. And to me, that resonates in many ways with the Victorian period. Mm-hmm. And I see some serious parallels between the sort of disconnection caused by the sudden shift of the Industrial Revolution, you know, the population moving to cities, the old social order sort of crumbling as the middle classes rise up. That was in, you know, it taking place mm-hmm. over the course of the 19th century. And then now you have these new disconnections caused by the rise of the internet, the social media, digital technology. Our world is has rapidly transformed again. And again, we're seeing the same feeling of we've been severed from the old. There's a sudden inrush of the new and, and in adapting to it, we're, we're lost. We're a bit cut loose from other people, from nature. I just, I wonder if you see the parallels between the two. Yeah, I agree. There's very little nature in this one, isn't there? Yeah, um, not much. We've had... I hadn't really sort of thought of that side of it, but we definitely so lethal white. There's some nice little moments of plant life when they're going out into the Oxfordshire countryside. We often had gardens where she sat in rose gardens and thought about mm-hmm. things, you know, and I feel there's a bit of that, I suppose it's just Highgate Cemetery, isn't it? So there is this, the plant life in Highgate Cemetery is absolutely over the graves, but it's yes. not, you know, it's a very Gothic nature in a cityscape. It is. No, I think that's absolutely right. A new a new disconnection and maybe things like, you know, the families are very messed up in this. Obviously, the upcots are the yes. most extreme version. But yeah. we've also got the Ledwells, the relationship between Edie and the person who I think was originally her brother and is now her uncle. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's a different that's so section. confusing. A very <laughs> different set. I assume that's going to be tied up in the paper. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that leaves a different sense of disconnect. But even without that, the, the money, you know, him giving her money instead of anything more and Rachel, yeah. she had known her more and that sort of sense of the family as a unit having been destroyed by each side having a different online community which is replacing a familial one and of Inigo you know he's much more interested in these young children who he's like Kia and you know Rachel who's sort of interacting with online than his own children Um, and he has that incredible fear of Flavia like entering a room he's in it's like what did you know um oh yeah it's awful <laughs> yeah it's absolutely awful and you're just like um and then yeah they sealed hermetically sealed separate part of the house so yes I think that's right it does work very well with the time and Rowling's pointed out another one of this sort of valorization of sickness and death which she found in the Victorian poets and which yes. she sort of felt on Tumblr and some of the other places she was sort of investigating on the internet. I was thinking about that too because it makes me think of tuberculosis specifically it was very romanticized it was the aesthetic of consumption became trendy because fashionable to look like you were wasting away that you were pale but flushed and you know very yeah. very skinny and we had sort of heroin chic you know obviously that's sort of 19 <laughs> <laughs> modern tuberculosis chic you know yeah. everything always comes back again <laughs> you know it's never gone <laughs> i feel like in a lot of the ways the victorian period was the i mean obviously it was the root of a lot of 
what happens today. But I think a lot of the things, the forces that were changing the world are happening again or have never stopped happening in the same social mm. malaise crops up again. But yeah, your your mentioning of sickness, Rowling talks about how sickness, it's a theme in the novel, it's personal and it's societal. And it makes me think about how Victorian fiction is, it's full of sickness because everyone was sick. Like the wallpaper is poisoning you with arsenic, right? <laughs> like there's cholera everywhere. There's the tuberculosis running rampant. The smog is choking your lungs if you're in the cities and the factory cities. But it, it's often used as a commentary on social condition, like a symbol of the exploitation. So I'm thinking of like North and South. Mm. Where Bessie, she says she's inhaled so much cotton and her lungs have clogged that it's a common disease we know it's consumption but it's a symbol of how the masters mistreat the hands i don't know where i was going with this but i think the connection is interesting the fact she uses a 19th century medical text also brings this connection into the the way victorians looked at illness and the way people are looking at illness in this novel like you said, Kia mm. Niven. It's a good parallel. And I suppose it, again, in terms of bringing a sympathy and empathy to it, you know, saying this is not a new problem. No. And I suppose there's slightly children versus adults, I think, here as well. Yeah. Which we also had in Casual Vacancy very strongly. Yes. And this one is the less... So, you know, I think Casual Vacancy is very sympathetic towards its teenagers. Um, and there's some you know, genuine heroism among its teenagers. And this one is less so (laughs) she's a bit more fed up with them and I feel (laughs) this not having grown up so Anami isn't a teenager anymore yeah he hasn't moved out of that perspective Mm -hmm. and I suppose by inflecting it more in a male female version that Anami wants something from girls and they haven't given it to him and so he's gone you know completely crazy yeah but you know he hasn't explored the simple path of being nicer to people that might have, you know, might have they made him more do. appealing. As an yeah, <laughs> they, they, they never think, of, like, maybe I should try being actually, you know, nice. Maybe. Yeah. Just something very more specific. She was talking about the fact she was interested in the very specific time of this time in the internet, which obviously is different from our present time. And one of them was the, she calls it the Wild West nature of YouTube, that it was less uh, looked at. And therefore, Wally Card, you can get away with doing, you know, rather slightly yes. crazy stuff. But also Twitter. So one is that, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, doesn't don't they know about the fact you don't have to be actually tweeting, you can you know set your tweets to go at a particular time and apparently that wasn't really possible in 2015 no so that's not for personal accounts yeah and I asked Nick Jeffrey about blocking because I was also like you know why are these four women allowing these accounts to just be incredibly hideous to them overall you know the moment one of these I am Evola Lipa's disciple says one of these things to any one of these women they just block him I don't know yeah. why and he confirmed that it was a lot more difficult to block uh, oh, 2015. Yeah, so it a blocking didn't mean that they couldn't see your see or comment on your threads anymore, and it didn't mean when you went down a thread, you could still see their comments. Oh, interesting. So it sort of just took okay. them out of your feed, but not in any, and you couldn't do DMs. So that was when Kia says 
she blocked Annamie and then yeah. that was correct. But the question of why sort of less protection. So again, that's this business a little bit like your point about Victorian. The lack of regulation. Yeah. <laughs> they need a bit more regulation. Exactly. Yeah. So this is a really non-regulated time where it hasn't quite, hasn't quite worked out what to do. Regulation. We still need quite a bit we of work on that whole regulation. I did think those, you know, those, he, he wouldn't be getting anywhere with any of those. The moment he makes any one of those comments, it just gets blocked. You'd hope so. I've seen some very misogynistic <laughs> stuff not get blocked, but <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Here we are yeah. saying to all of this, the moment anyone says any of those kind of things, you just block them. That's the end of that. Oh, yeah. Just um, <laughs> and anime is different. Anime has status. You know, I can un- totally understand why people don't want to block anime. That's fine. But yeah. these completely unknown accounts that are just being abusive, they'd get blocked by me. <laughs> Uh, you suggested Beatrice, and we love this idea that we should do a bit of a favorite epigraphs section to close out the novel. So Lindsay has sent us her thoughts about her favorite epigraphs. Kenz, maybe you want to uh, share Lindsay's thoughts with us. Yeah, I'd be happy to yeah. give your voice a little bit of a break there. Oh, I'm still <laughs> recovering from an illness. I, that's why my voice sounds so... Uh... It's, it's totally right for Ink Black Heart discussion. Yes, it is. <laughs> Definitely. All right. So here is what Lindsay sent us to uh, to talk about. So she says, wish I could be with you all today, but I wanted to add some thoughts and maybe you can share them for me. In an attempt not to ramble on too much about the more romantic epigraphs, I wanted to point out something that I'm really enjoying about rereading this book. I think there are certain epigraphs that feel different once you know the paper white twist. We've already talked about chapters 17 and 31, but I also really like chapter 53 for this reason. And then she lists the epigraph here, which is 19, A Snake by Emily Dickinson. And it goes, sweet is the swamp with its secrets until we meet a snake. And she continues, the conversation between Morehouse and Paperwhite begins with Paperwhite using the pet name that she has for him, which is Mouse. When you read the two conversations that Gus is having with Morehouse as Anime and Paperwhite, he's essentially luring Morehouse in. After apologizing for mentioning his disability, Paperwhite tells Morehouse that she's in love with him and he returns her affection while Anime is telling him to go ahead and get involved with her. He doesn't care. It's totally fine. Gus is luring Morehouse into a sense of happiness and hopefulness that he might actually have something with quote-unquote Nicole, but really he's just a snake waiting to attack his quote-unquote mouse. I think on the first read it feels like Anime is the snake, but now we know the ending. Having Paperwhite be the one to call him mouse feels like maybe this should have been a clue that Paperwhite is also the snake. Yeah, that's a good one. Beatrice, have you been rereading the novel with that Paperwhite twist? Because it is sending us all the yeah, time. It's yeah, so good. I did slightly get it, not quite as early as I would have liked to, but I, I was nowhere guessing Anime, but I did guess relatively soon that Anime and Paperwhite were one. <sighs> How did you? God, I did a a bit. I was the thing that set me off was the bit where she sent her nudes to anime by mistake. Yeah, suspicious. I was very suspicious about that. Yeah, and Uh, I think the disability thing, so that where she let you know Morehouse think that Fiendel had done it, and I was like, Fiendel says she hasn't, you know, done it. So this suggests that Paperwhite knows by some other path and is using this to pretend that Fiendel has broken so I was yeah I had my suspicions <laughs> good for um, you because <laughs> we're I'm only sure. picking that all up now <laughs> well I had I was very early on I thought you know the moment we saw those three columns of text I was like right 
someone is two people. Oh, that, is why that makes sense. That's yeah. why. Like, otherwise, because it's such a pain in terms of <laughs> setup. And the reason we've got it is we've got to work out who's never typing at the same time. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't get it immediately, but I knew there would be that. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. Well, <laughs> thanks. Now we I feel like a bit of a dark. I had <laughs> lots of people got that. I was just like, I was like, oh, why has she done this? What is this for? And I was like, God. See, so, yeah. this is why I shouldn't race through the novel trying to get to the good Corman Robin bit. This is why I should <laughs> yeah, pay attention right? and think about what I'm reading as if well, I'll ever do that. Well, it was a brain workout, this one. I had to say the three the three the levels of the Twitter handles and the in-house and then the real life names. And I, yeah, it could feel, uh, yeah, it was like, oh, my brain is hurting. It's it was hard to keep, it was hard to keep track hard. of. Yeah. And I did, you know, Tim Ashcroft and Pez, really blurred into one in first reading for me you know so this sort of yeah and philip ormond and seb montgomery never i've still not really got seb montgomery he uh, he's not really an entity in this book like, he's a know, non-entity but he's you know? another bloke just confusing yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. too many men too many There's, men <laughs> but there were just a lot of these yeah of men of a certain Type Page, yeah, in, type. yeah, and it's like you know, so sort of like Nils uh, was a completely different thing. Wally Kaji was kind of clear, yeah, so there were yeah. people at the edges who were completely different. But then there were these sort of four blokes in the middle who were pretty similar. Um, obviously, they're not really similar, but you just in terms of you just don't have a strong yeah. sense of separation. But yeah, yeah. in terms of a uh, favorite one for me, I I'm going to choose a romantic one. So oh, lovely! <laughs> I was seventy five. Emily Pfeiffer, the witch's last ride. Oh yes! It gave your curses strength. It warmed your bones the coldest night to feel you were not all alone against the world to fight. And this is very similar to a number of epigraphs we've had in previous books, where you have the moment of Strike and Robin together working out things together mm-hmm. and having an epigraph that fits that sense of companionship, which is yeah, as Lois always an enjoyable one. It's so lovely. Didn't have as much of that in this novel as I like. So I always like the ride. You know, there's normally a trip in a car where this happens. And yeah. so when, when they had their sort of short trip in the car when they were sulking and not talking to each other, <laughs> I was like, oh, no, is this our car ride? This is tragic. <laughs> I mean, they got a they got a nice hotel talk instead. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, they did. Mm. They had, had nice hotel talk and said that, mm, that's yeah. good. But yeah, the car ride was there. But yeah, this one was a nice one. Of, yeah, we're, we have each other's nice backs. One. That is so nice. Mine is similar. I mean, I have a ton of favorites. The ones that we've covered so far in the podcast, some of my favorites are chapter 16, The Call. We Mm -hmm. had a lot to say about that one, about the imagery of the fire and the flame of justice. Chapter 19, From the Wood by Charlotte Bronte is another of my personal favorites, mostly because I feel like the poem itself has a lot to do with Robin and Corman's relationship. I think I quoted it extensively in a previous episode we did. But the poem itself, it speaks to the conflict between Strike and Robin where Strike wants to protect Robin from danger. And she's like, no, I need I need to be an equal partner and face danger with you. That's one of my favorites. But of the ones we haven't talked about yet, I chose one about their relationship as well. Chapter 60. Oh, give me the friend from whose warm, faithful breast... The sigh breathes responsive to mine. Mary swoon a little bit. Yeah, (laughs) Mary T, a faithful friend is the medicine of life. So that's when Strike is helping Robin move. And him showing up for her when she needs him, being her friend. 
unasked with a pot plant and some sandwiches is one of my favorite parts of this book. Cause that is, that's a best friend thing to do and they are best friends. And I just like to see him supporting her and <laughs> ditching and it is to do something so. <laughs> I really liked about that was the fact that he knew where she lived. So that sort of yes. his clever brain had been at, on it, even when he wasn't seeming to be paying that much attention, he remembered her he address. Did. And I think, most of us wouldn't have managed to do that. Oh, God, no. <laughs> that, was, that was a very nice, yeah, uh, uh, as it were, a true part of him, the part that's always paying attention was involved in in that, which is, yeah, yeah, really nice. It was, it was. I felt that chapter was also a, a sort of echo of the Jack chapter, wasn't it? So where, where she turns up for yes, him. Yes, yeah. And again, the sort of family illness in the background as well, that she's sort of upset about her father. So it had a nice, she was doing that. She dropped everything to be with him and look after him. And, and he's now returning. He's doing it. the same thing. Oh, God, I just love them so much. We haven't had much time for swooning in this in this episode. <laughs> we always, we always got to get a swoon. Yeah, in. Uh, yeah oh. minimum of one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so many good poems I've discovered. Magdalene by Amy Levy is another one that I loved. That poem is fantastic. And Myself by Ada Isaacs Menken was also one of my favorites. It is gorgeous. And it it resonates with Robin's journey throughout these novels as well. I'm a big Robin fan. All of the poems that are speaking to her are really landing with me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for mine, I also had a few because I couldn't narrow it down to just one. And one of mine was also chapter 60. Yeah, it's just such a good example of just like you were saying of just them being, you know, him being there for her and them being best friends, you know, as much as I and we love the possibility of their romantic relationship, their friendship and just them being best friends is also really sweet. So I love that. But as far as other epigraphs that really speak really well to like what happens in that chapter, and those are really the ones that are always my favorite where I'm like, I feel like I know it's going to happen as soon as I read that epigraph, you know? (laughs) So some of my favorites for that are going to be chapter 43. So that's after he punches that member of the happening in the men's bathroom. Yes. The one for chapter 55, which is the interview with Hartella there's a little thing in there about how she's vile that since I've read it again thinking about uh you know our discussions is always reminds me of you I'm like yeah you probably would agree with that yes she is vile (laughs) but then there's two more uh there's chapter 94 when Madeline stabs strike with her stiletto oh that was a fun one (laughs) and that was when I thrust you down and stabbed you twice and twice again because you dared take off your crown and be a man like other men and that's another Mary Elizabeth Coleridge called Mortal Kombat. Awesome. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my that was one of my guesses, that one. Oh, was it? That was one of your yeah. hits. Yeah. Oh, that's such yeah, a good one. And then that last one, of course, you know, 107 with the excerpt from Later Life, a double sonnet of sonnets, you know, obviously where Strike realizes his feelings doesn't sound quite as romantic as the end of Troubled Blood, but it's still promising, I think. And it was then, you know. I've been hoping for sonnets in this in this one, and so this is this like yes, song. I got one. <laughs> a sonnet. <laughs> I do love sonnets. I like that the way that they're predictable. They make sense. They have a structure that you have to follow. Unlike all of these romantics just waffling on and on and on about trees and mountains and stuff in blank verse, drives me crazy. Is the problem with sonnets is that as epigraphs is the problem is that yeah they're kind of too perfect Mm -hmm. it's quite difficult to take 
a section for a, a sonnet a, yes. a whole sonnet's too long you could obviously just just have the sort of conclusion but I think I think that might be an issue when maybe she's not going to do sonnets because they do have this this problem they always speak yeah they're sort of perfectly crafted they do uh, there's, a, there's an issue <laughs> it could be bits out but it, it could be. be done I love it. I I enjoy sonnets as a poetic form I know how to read a sonnet I don't know how to sit down and read you know lines above Tinter and Abbey but such a good collection of epigraphs I love all of them honestly most of these are my favorites one of my favorites is one that's not even an epigraph actually London by Joanna Bailey I don't know if you listen, Beatrice, but we discovered that this is misattributed while we were recording. <laughs> so I had had a whole interpretation planned about how good London by Joanna Bailey is at, <laughs> at summing, up, summing up the London of this novel, capturing the way that it is not the glittering surface, but the dark mysteries and the fogs of London that Strike and Robin are looking at, that that's where the sublime happens. And then I find out that the actual poem, no, it's Emily Dickinson. It's not Joanna Bailey's London. Joanna Bailey's London isn't in the book, but it's still really good applied yeah, to these novels. And I'm sure she's read it. You know, she said, she said, I read all of these people, didn't she say? Yeah. Maybe it influenced her without making it into. And doesn't that poem even mention like Hampstead Heath? It started off talking about the Hampstead's Heathy Heights when they were on Hampstead Heath. Right after they like, finished with the Upcots. Yeah. It's so perfect. What? Take Emily Dickinson out, put Bailey back in. <laughs> Before we go, I wondered, Beatrice, if you had any thoughts on the running grave epigraph hints that we've had so far. Yeah, so this was, yeah, Rolling Library, fantastic find by Patricia, sort of uh, the, the brilliance of how we yeah. know how to do things with computers and finding <laughs> these epigraphs. But I feel, you know, I'm always... And I only like to do things with things that she has released herself. Oh, but I okay. feel like by putting, you know, by putting it on there and you can see they're there, I suspect she knew they could be found. So I think she knew very well that people would instantly <laughs> reverse read that. She's very crafty with what she posts on Twitter, I think. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Potential. So that's, yeah. that's fair, fair go. But yeah, so the running grave, obviously, we already knew from the title was going to be Dylan Thomas. Dylan now, Thomas. Dylan Thomas is not a favorite of mine, I have to admit. So it's going, going to be a new discovery. Um, yeah. yeah, I was just about to ask you about that. I was feeling a little trepidatious, you know, if, if the epigraphs are going to come from Dylan Thomas, it's like, whew, this is going to be a long read. <laughs> it's been a lot of time. Because like they don't, they, you kind of have to think about them, you know, they don't, they're, they're not, not very easy. straightforward, you know. No. They're not straightforward, and I don't, yeah, they're not simpatico. We're not simpatico. Yeah. I'm in the same place. So, obviously, we've got the I Ching as well, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the I Ching. I didn't know anything about this. You know, this is a book, to be honest, I'd never even heard of before she put the I Ching oh. header up, and it's one of the most read books in human history. So, I find it sort of fascinating. Wow. This book. Yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary it's it's the idea that one had never even heard you know with this kind of book it's like it's mm -hmm. up there so that's fascinating i've written a post on the i ching for hogwarts professor oh yeah just with what we might be going with i haven't done one yet on this epigraph i sort of waiting so carry on waiting. Waiting before yeah. turning turning this but I, okay I fair enough <laughs> but um i think the i ching is fascinating my theory is that he's going to see 
prudence and that prudence will say something about the I Ching because I, you know, Jungian therapists do use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is going to trigger off a memory from his childhood. So I think that I Ching was used oh. in the North Book Commune by later. It fits in very much with that sort of incense stick. So th- the things we've learned, these little pictures it does, of his yeah. life. So I think it's going to be a double reference and we're going to have a return to Norfolk okay. that's my tying the two halves of what we know about we know Prudence is turning yeah. up we know Norfolk is turning up and I think the I Ching does connect those two so it's very much plot related. <laughs> putting out my yeah, yeah. that's my yeah. with the running grave this is a sense of death is something that pursues you in life that seems mm-hmm. to be I'd say the sort of central reading that I have of that poem and that title what that means for the plot of the novelism is not very clear um it is possible and there's all the sort of watery stuff that we've got you know there's two posts of the pier is this going to be are we going to go back to norfolk because it's in strikes childhood but it's also going to be the location of this murder and so a death in the sea the body actually coming up uh, running running yeah, water grave coast, quite yeah. literally that yeah. seems, it certainly mm-hmm. seems a possible double reading of it and I suppose something about death in life is what we're getting from that poem so something yeah. about his own life relating I, I have said a long time ago years and years ago I said I'm expecting Leda's murderer to be revealed in seven now that we don't know quite what she's going to do is she's going to keep stick with the original seven plot and then add on or is she going to spread it out which is what we've been feeling has been happening with five and six so I'm not so confident now um, I'm still I've always said kiss is happening in seven so I'm sticking with that all right <laughs> well <laughs> fingers now. fingers crossed yeah, because I I can't, I can't do another book with this. So this, I, I'm sticking with that one, but I, okay. because we've had nothing from Rokeby, I feel we need a, a revelation from Rokeby and then that's mm-hmm. going to help discover Lady's murderer. It seems like a lot to do in just one novel, given how incredibly slow each thing has been going to this. So I'm wondering if that, that's going to be actually 10, but they get together. So, so that's, yeah, that's where I am with that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of happens to there's only so much fanfic i can read all right okay (laughs) well that was a fantastic conversation thank you Mm. so much beatrice i think we covered pretty much I think we covered a lot, right? Yeah, a lot, mm-hmm. yeah, how many and diverse these epigraphs are. They are they are very rewarding yeah. diving into the different poets and the different poems. I find it incredibly Yeah, rewarding. absolutely. And these, you know, very, very interesting lives and people. So yeah, that's I really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, I hope we can have you on again for the Redding Graves epigraphs. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Unless it's still in Thomas, in which case just pretend like you're dead. (laughs) I think I has to engage with the epigraphs every time, but I'm I'm hoping, I want her to go back to early modern. Yeah. She'll see when. I'm I'm still hoping for like some Victorian novels, although I, I know that that's a faint hope. But that's my, that's my area. You know what's really funny is actually a year ago today was when we came out with the episode that we did with you and Nick. Oh, it's it's almost, yeah, exactly. Yeah, a year. (laughs) So it's the March epigraph, which means that, you know, we're owed running grave in time to do it. Oh, we're getting it in 2020. (laughs) That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. 
We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files Pod. You can also contact us on our website at thesefilespod.com or email us directly at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of The Strike and Ellicott Files.